0: So let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence with us and your love for us. Help us now as we uh, reflect on your word to grow in our understanding. And will you speak to us? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we reach the fifth Sunday in Lent, at least I think it is, Passion Tide. Uh, where we traditionally think about the passion of Jesus and how he's beginning to take those steps forward towards the cross. So next week is Palm Sunday and the following Sunday will be uh, Easter following the events of Good Friday when we remember Jesus on the cross. And so our reading tonight uh, from John's Gospel has Jesus beginning to recognize that there's a turning point going on in his life as he's beginning to look away from his ministry on earth and the people he's been with to the cross. And there's a very significant phrase in there, the hour has come. So as we look at this uh, chapter, uh, we notice that this reading that we have comes at the end of a sequence of events. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 12, you see that Jesus has arrived at Bethany where his friend Lazarus had lived his great friend, he's been with his friends and a special dinner was given for him and Mary comes and anoints him with precious oil and that oil reminds us of two things. Oil is used for the anointing of a king or it is used uh, for burial. And so here we have two things that are going on in our minds. We're immediately thinking oil, kingship and burial, royalty and suffering and uh, after the um, anointing at Bethany and that time with his friends, he then leaves his friends and, or walks with them, leaves the home and walks with them into Jerusalem on a donkey. And uh, he's surrounded by crowds of people who are calling out and saying, here is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So anointed at Bethany and then he comes in. On a donkey, and a king uh, used to come on a donkey when it was he was coming in peace. So it was a sign that he was coming in peace, not in war. And so that very act of being on the donkey is proclaiming his kingship, and the people in their crowds recognize this, and they crawl out to him. And the disciples really don't understand what's going on. We're told, and the Pharisees look at this, and they've been opposing Jesus for a long time, and they've been trying to get rid of him. And they're looking out and they're seeing all of these people and realizing that what they've been doing in opposing him is, in verse 19, getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. It's as if the whole of everyone in Jerusalem and people have come from all over the place are clamoring to see Jesus coming. And at this point, John tells us that there were some Greeks amongst those who went up to worship at the feast. That's verse 20. And these Greeks came to Philip. Philip is a Greek name, so it's likely that he came from Greek stock or he had uh, Greek uh, as a language. And they approached him to say, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so Philip goes to meet Andrew and then together they come and tell Jesus that these Greeks have come. And you see how it's moved from there. The whole world has gone after him and then the Greeks come who represent the thinking of the world, the philosophy of the world and and the best that it is that that the world can, can do in that sense. And at that moment, Jesus replies, not let them come in, but he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's kind of extraordinary. What happened? Why was it that Jesus in that moment suddenly realize that this is the key moment this is where i have to start and and move decisively towards the cross to pay the, the penalty uh, to pay for people that ransom for sins and perhaps it is this culmination of he is the king of the jews and of how people think that the whole world is coming and jesus is reminded that this is the moment where the whole world depends upon him And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And for him, glorification is not as the world would think and having seen, it's not being lifted up on a throne immediately and put uh, in a position of power. It is actually about suffering and dying. And there's parallels between this uh, teaching here of Jesus where He's speaking to his disciples and saying, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single word. With Matthew 6, where Peter talks about recognizing him as you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the the one we expect to be king. But then Jesus immediately goes on to say to him, yes, you're right, I am the Messiah. And then teaches him about suffering and dying And rising, and we know how Peter found that so difficult to cope with it. And it's as if John wants us to understand in this moment that all the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, perhaps the highest um, uh, kind of uh, personification of religious ideals and ethics and morality, and the highest uh, authority of, of thinking that the Greeks represent. The philosophy, neither the most pure religion nor the most pure philosophy can actually achieve the salvation of people. It is only Jesus that can bring that salvation. And that salvation is not the result of his piety or of his intelligence, but it's about that self-giving on the cross. The relinquishing of all power, the relinquishing of life. Itself, And so Jesus is preparing his disciples here. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. There's a natural growth. Jesus was a keen observer of the natural world. He looked at the things around them and then shared them to help people understand the things of God. And he recognised that there's this natural cycle in the world of life and death and new life. Now, one of the things that always strikes me uh, when I'm in Uganda, and really struck me afresh this time, was seeing all the bushfires in the national parks. And it looks terrible, because you see these huge flames that are going up. And uh, It's Everything seems to be being destroyed. But then you realise, after a while, that unless those fires, and they mostly start spontaneously, come, the dead grass chokes the life out. There's no space for new growth to come. And so in order for the new growth to come and for the animals to thrive, the dead grass has to be burnt away. And it happens naturally, usually through lightning strikes. But it involves suffering. For the new life to come there is a price that has to be paid. And so many of the animals in the parks, they have to find their own um, strategies of survival. And the small ones go down under the ground, the winged ones fly up, and the larger ones run round, and they get used to neighing it. But some get caught out. And there is a suffering and a price to be paid. But the result of that suffering is that new grass grows within a very few days. In fact, probably about three days, the new grass appears. And then life returns. And you can see a few days later how all the animals come back to a new life, a better life. And so Jesus is saying, understand that the seed has to die in the ground before it can grow up and produce much fruit. He's preparing his disciples to understand why it is that he has to die. And then he goes on to say, the man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And on one level, he's talking about himself. He's also beginning to prepare himself for what's going to happen. And he's recognizing that he's got to die, he's got to offer up his life. But it's hard. And so it's almost like he's teaching himself as well as us, where he says, the man who loves his life will lose it. Can you hear him saying to himself, don't forget if you love your life, you will lose it. If you hold on to it. And the Greek word there is suke. And that suke is the self, uh, the, the kind of mortal life, our mortal identity and what we are. And so if we hold on to our life which we have here, we will lose it. But he says, well, the man who hates in th- his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So... The one who loves his suke, his mortal life, will lose it. We all die. But the man who hates his suke in this world will keep it for eternal. And the the Greek word changes there to zoe. Will keep it for eternal life. It's the same word for life that Jesus uses in John 10, verse 10, where he says, I have come that you may have life in all its fullness. So it's almost as if what Jesus is saying is that that mortal life, that self, that self-centered life, which seems to mean so much to us with all the things around it that may be associated with it, if you want to hold on to that, you're going to lose it. But if you sit lightly to it, as if the contrast, and that's a teaching contrast, loving that life or hating it, putting it away, if you don't love that life, if you rather hate it, then you will receive the gift of eternal life. That quality of life that comes from Jesus, which is different from the life that is uh, earthly and which is so often self centered and put around our needs. And Jesus' words too echo, uh, again, John's here, the words that Jesus used in Matthew 20, or in Matthew 26, and Luke 22, and Mark 14 take up this cross and follow me. And if anyone would. (coughs) Sorry, I'm losing it. So we have this choice, but it's not an easy one. Jesus in verse 27 says, now my heart is troubled. And that word for heart there is the same word, suke, again. That self, that heart, that identity of being and so on, that human side, that mortal side, is looking at this choice of giving up life and of offering himself for others And he's troubled, and the Greek there means really shocked and disturbed. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do that even Jesus, facing the cross, was absolutely troubled. We read in uh, the other Gospels that Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which this echoes again, was praying and under so much stress that he sweated blood. So we have this picture of Jesus who is thinking about this hour and thinking about what is to come and it is incredibly painful. And yet in the heart of it is this truth that whoever serves me must follow me and where I am my servant also will be. So we are invited by Jesus to join him in this process of learning not to hold to Strongly to the things of this earth and of our lives and the things that we want but to focus our lives on eternal life and that our focus on that gift of eternal life is so strong that it's as if we hate this life. And we're going to share that same temptation that Jesus had, that temptation to love this life because Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and if you're like me it's likely that unlike Jesus we're going to fail again and again as Peter failed but that is the invitation to love the eternal life but what does that mean what does it mean to not love this life that we live in and to hate it but rather to receive the gift of eternal life Does it mean, as so often has been seen, practicing a lifestyle of saying no? No to everything that we enjoy. There's a a Joyce Meyer video that was doing the rounds on Facebook. Some of you may have seen it. It's called, Does Jesus Like Tattoos? And she was talking about a kind of evangelical and a, a kind of Christian understanding, which basically came down to, if you're a Christian, no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no parties, no cards, no makeup, No nice clothes, no tattoos, no earrings, unless you're a woman, and no fun. A whole series of rules and regulations by which we have to live our life. Is that what it means to hate this life? And for many it's it's appeared like that. But that doesn't seem to fit with Jesus who uh, celebrated life, who experienced every part of it. He experienced both luxury and luxury as well as poverty. He experienced friendship. He experienced hatred. He experienced family. He experienced laughter, food, and the beauty of creation. He lived life to the full. So, what does it mean to not hold on to the suké, but to hold on to the eternal life? And I think it's, about recognizing that everything that we have in this life is temporary everything that we have is a gift from God it is not ours we can enjoy it for a while and sometimes we may not have it but actually what's most important is what comes from God I was meeting with uh, James Cannon who's the uh, minister of the uh, Resound Church earlier this week and we were talking about it and he said this as we were kind of talking about church life and the things that we do and so on. And it struck in my mind, he said, the danger is that we come to love the things of God more than God himself. The danger is that we come to love the things of God more than God himself. And I think the thing is that sometimes we have this challenge sometimes. Do we love the things of this life or do we love the things of God? All that we have and all that we enjoy should be celebrated because they are good. They also should be shared because others don't have them. But they can't replace God. And I think Jesus, who'd been offered by the devil on the mount, he'd been offered everything. Everyone can bow down before you. He could have had everything in this life. But he knew that to have that would be to lose what was most important. And it's easy to find out whether we are loving the things of God or the things of this life by thinking about what our reaction would be if they were taken away. I kind of give you an example, I think, of how it works. Robert Mugabe, uh, not my favorite person in the world, president of Zimbabwe where I used to work, Um, he was in power for a long time and he had lots of people who were around him who loved him and fawned on him and gave everything to him but the moment he was out of power they all fell away because they didn't love Robert Mugabe they loved the things that they got by being associated with him and we're not meant to be like that with God we're meant to love God for who he is and to obey him And over this last few years, many of us have walked with Martin Brown. And we had, well, I wasn't able to be there, but his funeral. And I was kind of reflecting on Martin's life and experience. And in earthly terms, he was a man who was a wonderful man. Who was generous and hospitable and uh, gracious and lovely. You couldn't imagine Martin doing anything Horrible, could you really? Or nasty. If anyone was good, it was Martin and Myra. So when Myra got Alzheimer's and then Martin got that horrible disease that took away every facility and faculty that he had, it could very easily have been, and I'm sure many of us asked the question, how can there be a God who allows a couple so beautifully and so lovely to go through this? It's not fair. It's not right. There can't be a God who would do that. And Martin could easily have done that. You know, when I, if I was in that situation and losing the ability to eat and to speak and all those things that were so precious to me, how easy. I'm, I don't know what I could do And yet for Martin, he was full of praise and love from God to the very end. And I can see that for Martin, the things of God and the gift of eternal life meant that he held lightly to the things of this world. That their loss when they were taken away from him did not leave him in despair or in anguish or pain. But actually left him rejoicing in his saviour. And I think that's what it means to hate the things of this world. And to love that gift of eternal life. Because the things of this world we can enjoy them while we have, but when they're taken away, it's not the end of the world. we have that choice. Do we hold on to things that we cannot keep or do we let them go and rely instead upon God and his grace? It kind of sets us free from the things that so often we have to kind of hold on to. It helps us to focus on he is. It's much easier to be generous in giving when we know that we can't keep it and it's not the source of our happiness. So do we love God or do we love our own lives first? For those who choose to love God and to follow Him, there will be highs and lows. There will be moments of triumph. There will be times of great fellowship with friends. There will be riches and poverty. There will be life to the full. There will be suffering. There will be times of confidence. There will be times of doubt. But Jesus says the promise is that whoever serves me and follows me, I will be with them or they will be with me. And my father will honor the one who serves me. Now I find that a huge challenge because I've been a Christian for a very long time and sometimes I've been full of zeal. And it's really exciting and wonderful at the moment to be challenged constantly by my children who are so full of that love of God and have got it more than I have. I think sometimes when you get older, it becomes harder to sustain that. And it's great to be challenged and reminded by them. But to know that every day we face that choice. We won't always succeed, but when we do obey, God is with us and he honours us and Christ is there with us. So Jesus had to make that choice before the cross. It cost him a great deal. But we know the end of the story of resurrection and we know the difference that it made to the life of those disciples. And So as we go towards Easter, let's remember that moment of decision that Jesus had to make and remember how he chose God. And when we face those moments, let's find inspiration in him. Okay.